If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to Unforbidden Truth. I'm Andrew. On this week's episode, I'll be speaking with California death row inmate William Dennis. William Dennis is convicted of the October 31st, 1984 killing of his pregnant ex-wife and unborn fetus, baby boy Herbert. He was sentenced to death for the murder. The prosecutor's theory was that Dennis killed his ex-wife because of an incident involving their three-year-old son dying, drowning in a pool in 1980. On October 31st, 1984, William Dennis was dressed as a werewolf and knocked on the door of his ex-wife's residence. She then answered the door and he proceeded to stab her. William Dennis claims he did not know she was pregnant at the time. William Dennis was arrested, charged, and ultimately convicted of murdering his ex-wife Doreen Herbert and baby boy Herbert. I speak to William Dennis about his life growing up, the tragic incident of him losing his son, the murder of his ex-wife, and what life is like in prison on death row today. Here's my interview with California death row inmate, William Dennis. This is Global Telling. You have a prepaid call from... William Dennis. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. What was your childhood like growing up? Um, well, in some ways it was good, in some ways it was bad. I kind of lived a, a, a normal childhood as far as, you know, my parents were... Uh, weren't poor, you know, they weren't rich, but they weren't poor. I never went hungry or that, uh, at, at the age of about, uh, uh, 10 years old or so, I ended up getting kind of fat and that made it harder and I'm hard of hearing too. So I had to wear a hearing aid. So sometimes kids would laugh at me about stuff like that mm. and tease me more than the average kid would get teased. You know, in that, uh, I, you know, like going to school. I, you know, got decent grades, not great grades, but decent grades. And uh, I even went on to uh, junior college, you know, college. Did you ever suffer any type of abuse or trauma growing up as a child? Uh, 
No, I was not, not for my parents. My parents were, were very good parents. Have you been diagnosed with any mental illnesses? Oh, you know, the psychiatrist nowadays is saying that I'm kind of delusional and that I don't feel that to be the case. It's on more of a legal terminology than having to, you know, do something like see a psychiatrist or anything like that. What were your early years growing up behavior-wise throughout your teenage years? Um, well, I was uh, one of the, you know, uh, better kids, better uh, behaved kids. But then there was a time period where about from fifth grade to, we'll say, eighth grade, where it seemed like I needed to get into more fights than uh, most kids would. I wouldn't say I was violent. I'd be picked on because I'd be fat and hard of hearing. So they would pick on me and uh, even try to, you know, pick fights on me. As far as throwing the first punch, I only did that one time and, and, and all in growing up. So I always waited until I was hit first. What were your first few relationships in life like? Uh, you know, I was, uh, I was very shy with, with, with girls when I was uh, in my teenage years. How old were you when you met your ex-wife, Doreen, the victim in this case? How old were you? Okay, I see. Met her in January of 71, so I was 20. No, January 72, pardon me, 72, so I was 21. How old were you when you finally married her? Okay, we got married in August of 72, so I was 22 then. So not much time had passed between you guys getting together then getting married? Right. We met in January and got married in August. When you two were together before you were married and after you were married, what were your guys' relationship like? Was it steady? Was it rocky? Did you guys fight a lot? Was it the ideal marriage? Well, you know, at first it was uh, very good. And we didn't uh, fight a lot. We had a few arguments, but very minor. What kind of fights would you guys get into? Like, what would you guys fight about? Oh, well, usually it was about money back, back then. Uh, you know, uh, she liked to, you know, spend the money, and I was more of the saving type. You two had a child together that you two tragically lost. Um, was there ever any abuse towards your guys' child um, that you know of? Not that I know of, no. So, four years prior to you murdering your ex-wife, you tragically, you both tragically lose your four-year-old son at your ex-wife's house. What happened to your son that day? Okay, well, I, uh, I had, I would visit him, uh, uh, once a week, right? I had my visiting. And uh, so I'd get them from about 10 to, you know, 1, one thirty or so. And, uh, you know, uh, he was a daddy's boy. He was really keen when I when I'd drive up to the driveway and he'd see me, he'd run to me and, and uh, be very happy. And, uh, and so uh, we had a great relationship. And one of the things I think really helped build up the relationship while we were still together, I'm the type of person that wakes up early in the morning and ready to go. Dorian kind of liked to sleep in. 
so I would uh, warm up his milk or his formula. And so for Paul, I'd be the first person he'd see and I'd have his food for him. And uh, I think that created a, a very strong bond between us. So what exactly happened that day? Oh, that particular day? Well, um, we had gone shopping. I went shopping with him. And then uh, we went over to my house and I had bought him some some toys for uh, for Christmas and he played with the toys and he he kind of liked to show me what he was doing and stuff and uh, and I just kind of you know spend time with him and then we had had some lunch and uh, then after lunch I uh, took him back home and then you dropped him off with his mom and then shortly after that. He got in the pool. And, well, okay. Well, what was what was unusual about this particular time? Uh, uh, he, he put like a little temper tantrum, and he was on uh, on the porch, and he didn't want to go in the house for some reason. I didn't, I didn't know why. I just thought maybe he was sad that our time together was was over. With. So I ended up having to pick him up and put him in, in the house, and, uh, you know, that was the last time I got to hold on to him, and uh, so uh, I was working swing shift, so I had to, you know, take off and, and, and go to work, and that was kind of the unusual thing, and I dropped him off at 1.15, and by 2.02, she was calling me uh, fire department to help rescue Paul. And uh, the doctors told us in the hospital that he was under the water for at least 20 minutes. And did he did he jump in there or did he fall in the water? Did he did he fall in or did he was he trying to swim? You know, personally, I believe she threw him in the water because she because she was upset because he was he was such a daddy's boy. That, uh, that that I think that just upset her, and I think she may have going through a postpartum depression because she uh, recently had had her daughter, and that was about ten weeks after she gave birth. And uh, you know because because uh, he couldn't swim, we had talked about teaching him to to, to swim, and she said that. He was unable to do so. What do you think that she was angry about enough to the extent that she would throw him in the water? He was a daddy's boy. And, uh, and it's sort of like, oh, she's got a new kid now. And, uh, you know, may not make a whole lot of sense to you. But, and but the fact is, when he's in the pool, she was an average swimmer. And uh, she could reach the bottom of the pool with no problem but she wouldn't even jump in her own pool to save her son, which just kind of shocks me that she went to get the neighbor to, and he jumped in to rescue my, my son. And of course he was unconscious by the time they got him to the surface, correct? Well, he's been under the water, according to the doctors, for about 20 minutes. So, uh, so he never regained consciousness. Hmm. Uh, in fact, he, uh, 
he had to be helped in, uh, you know, breathing. And uh, eventually, after six days, uh, uh, he had a heart attack. He had several before, but he had a heart attack this last time. And by then, we had talked to the doctors and agreed that, you know, there was no chance for him to, you know, pull through and just to let him go. What was that feeling like when you had to let him go? The worst moment of my life. I can only imagine. It was terrible. What was the aftermath that followed your son's death? up until the murder of your ex-wife on October 31st, 1984. Okay, well, um, after he died, I had to ask for a few things. Like, uh, I asked for some uh, pictures, and I asked that she return the uh, child support that I had paid for February because she didn't have to pay anything for him after the 7th. And, uh, and, And she refused. So I ended up going to an attorney to talk to him about it, and he said, well, you should sue, and that's what uh, happened. So so the lawsuit took uh, just about two years to to go through, and at this time I thought it was, you know, just negligence, but, uh, but she was so uncooperative. You were talking about a trial that you went to. Was that a criminal trial or was that a civil trial in regards to your son's death? Uh, it was a civil trial. And it was a lawsuit that, uh, that I brought uh, basically because uh, she refused to like uh, grant me even a single burial request or return any of the child support money or... Uh, do anything along those lines. And so I talked to an attorney and he suggested that I sue. Uh, It was not successful. Uh, It took place in uh, February, uh, the last couple of days of February of 1982. And uh, and even though uh, there was a total of seven people testifying, there were the Herberts, there was myself and four uh, witnesses that I call neutral witnesses because they had nothing to gain or lose based on their testimony. Two of them were uh, paramedics that had come to the rescue at the time, and two others were uh, actually uh, friends that she had invited for uh, a barbecue, uh, believe it or not, in December. And they had seen the fence, and they said the fence was in bad shape. The paramedics said the fence was in need of repair. And uh, and I said uh, the same thing, and they said it was the fence was A-OK. And uh, so the jury uh, voted 9-3 to three that there was absolutely no negligence, so that I would not receive a penny in compensation for the loss of my son. And how did you feel after that? Oh, it was devastating. I was in utter shock. Uh, it, uh, it actually, you know, I actually feel like I went totally insane there for a while because I just couldn't believe how uh, how a jury would uh, 
would believe that a child drowning in the pool and the fact that she wouldn't even jump in the pool, they got a neighbor to rescue them, that, uh, that, that they would feel that, uh, that there was no negligence involved. Well, I was just doing what any typical person would, would do if they lost a child that, that drowned in somebody's care. Because I dropped them off at 1.15. At 2.02, she called the paramedics to rescue Paul. And so that's 47 minutes after I dropped him off. And the doctor said that he was in the water for at least 20 minutes. And then to think that she could swim, and I knew she could swim just fine. She wouldn't even jump in her own pool to save her son. And uh, so then after the jury decided that there was absolutely no negligence, I had to try to figure out what happened. And one, one guy at work said maybe she wanted him dead. And that sort of like made everything click. Like, yeah, that's why she wouldn't jump in the pool. She wanted him dead. Well, you know, and that's why he was in the water for such a long time. She wanted him dead. And so why, why would she be so uh, mean to me not to grant a single burial request? Why would she not be willing to share the pictures where I said I would make copies and she said no. Why would she refuse to, you know, give back the child support that she wouldn't have had time to use if if she if she, you know, cared at all. But uh so that's why I believe she uh, killed Paul deliberately. Following that day, what was the aftermath that followed your son's death up until the murder of your ex-wife on October 31st, 1984? Well, actually, it was, uh, well, he drowned in, uh, on February 7th, 1980, and he died uh, February 13th, 1980. And uh, the first few few weeks, you know, I was, uh, I was asking her for, 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 for some things, and she said no. Then I went and saw an attorney, and then the attorney said that he felt the best thing to do would be to bring a, a civil suit, lawsuit. And uh, so that's, so that's what, what we did, and it took almost two years to, to bring that to trial. And then after, after the trial, I was like, you know, uh, just kind of, stir crazy to be honest with you and uh and then i you know i was very angry that she wouldn't jump in the pool and that i now believe that she had killed paul deliberately so was this your main motivation the night of the murder of your ex-wife yeah with that being said can you walk us through the murder what happened leading up to you walking up to the house on halloween of 1984 well, it's really kind of hard to, you know, uh, say why I decided that particular day because uh, that kind of stuff's a little bit fuzzy, you know. Uh, I just I just hated her, and 
And so, uh, so that's what happened. So what happened? You show up to the door and you're dressed up in some type of costume? Yes. What were uh, you wearing that night? Uh, well, I happened to have a wolf's mask and, uh, and I had a machete and, uh, then she answered, answered the door and then I went ahead and I attacked her. Did you just start hacking at her or were you stabbing her? Uh, Mostly just uh, striking her, you know. I I did uh, one time try stabbing her, and all that did was to uh, cut my hand, and that's how I received the injury. And I had dropped the uh, dropped the machete, and then uh, then the one thing I I said to her, "You killed my boy." So that way she kind of knew it was me. Do you remember about how many times you hacked her? Um, it seemed like about 20, but I'm not sure. After investigators find her, it's later pieced together that she was eight months pregnant and the fetus died as well that night. Did you know she was pregnant? And if so, did that make you angry that she became pregnant with another man's child? No, that did not bother me at all. I, in fact, I did not know she was pregnant. That's why I ended up taking a truth serum test to show that I did not know. We had no contact after the, after the civil suit uh, trial. She, I didn't call her, she didn't call me. So uh, there was no, uh, you know, I didn't know any more than my next door neighbor knew whether she was pregnant or not. And, you know, uh, actually, it uh, made me sad because I had no intentions on hurting, you know, uh, any, any little child. Yeah, but she was, she was the one that killed him, nobody else. Would you have still killed her if you knew that she was pregnant? Uh, no, because then it would have, I would have, someone's innocent would have been hurt, and that's not what I had in mind. If you knew she was pregnant, would you have waited to kill her, or would you just have moved on with your life? Um, it's kind of tough to say, because I, uh, I kind of had waited two years anyway. Uh, you know, not only, not only had she killed my son, but while we were married, she had three affairs. I had no affairs. Now, I forgave her for those affairs, but there's like, Kind of like, you know, uh, only so much any person can take. In, in, in fact, it's, you know, when you look at different cultures, uh, you, you can see where, uh, where it's normal for people to do this. And, and in fact, like Russia uh, in the medieval years had made a law stating who could kill who and not be sentenced at all, not to spend any time in, in, in jail. And so uh, I'm not asking to be, you know, uh, well, I got 36 years in, in, in prison as it is. And I'm a good person. That's, that's, that's the thing. I paid extra in child support. I pleaded for my son's life. What I really would like is to have uh, have an attorney and have a retrial because my attorney 
didn't bring out any of this. I couldn't even get him to tell the jury that I had no prior criminal record. You know, he gave no opening speech. He just, he was basically a DA's helper and not knowing anything about the court system back in those days, I just kind of figured that he was trying to do his best. That after, after What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. After learning what happened, I know he didn't do his best. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's such a sad situation. I've lost a child. That's even worse than being told you're sent to death row, you know. So I've had, I've suffered a lot. And I tried to, I used the justice system to settle it. And yet a jury said there was, I couldn't even get the jury to agree that she should fulfill the divorce agreement and pay the medical. That, that our son drowned in her pool and our divorce agreement called for her to pay the medical. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. I'm to pay the medical. In essence, I'm to make her life better. That's insane. That's not justice by any figment of the human imagination. I've never heard people say they would want to make life better for the killer of their child. And I listen for that see what how other people feel my wife and i we had gotten divorced in 1977 and she obviously got custody because it's very hard for a man to get custody of his child when he's you know under two years old anyway uh so she got custody and she moved in with chuck and eventually you know got married to him and in December of 1978, their dog had drowned in the pool. And when she told me about the dog drowning in the pool, my first reaction was, well, let's put up a fence so the same thing doesn't happen to Paul. I pleaded and I begged because I knew my son's life was on the line. It took him three months to put in a fence. I even offered to help him pay for the fence but you know that didn't pay they didn't like 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 those terms anyway they finally put a fence in then on december no excuse me on february 7th 1980 paul drowns i took him home i had i had him that day and we you know, did things that, you know, fathers and sons do. I took them out to the store and we had lunch together. And uh, he got to play with some of his toys that I got for him for, for, for Christmas. And uh, I bring him back at 2, at one fifteen that afternoon. By 2.02, she's calling the paramedics to come to save him. 
Now, the unusual thing was she wouldn't even jump in the pool herself. She could swim, but she did not jump in the pool. She got her neighbor. And uh, so at first I'm thinking, well, this is bad negligence. Shouldn't have happened. And uh, But she was very resistant. She, she wouldn't give me a picture of Paul. She wouldn't return any money. She refused to do anything to uh, help relieve the pain that I had. Wouldn't grant me a burial request. So I ended up suing because I saw an attorney and he said to sue. So we went ahead and decided to sue. And it takes about two years to bring a court to trial. And, uh, and so in February of 1982, we had a two-day trial because, uh, because you know, the, the uh, insurance company didn't want to, uh, you know, settle beforehand. So uh, we had, there were seven witnesses. There was the Herberts who owned the pool, who claimed that everything was just fine and dandy. There were four other people. Two of them were the paramedics who were there that day to rescue Paul. Uh, two of her friends who saw the uh, fence in the backyard area being dilapidated and bad shape, and myself all made the same claim. Well, the jury looked at all this, and even though they knew for 100%, no one denied that Paul drowned in the pool. They decided to do what they wouldn't want done to them, and that is to say that my loss was absolutely nothing. That's just terrible. That's not justice by any figment of the human imagination. Because what that does, that changes the, the death of Paul from being negligent something else and negligence is actually the second least uh, least you know mistake that can be made it says you didn't mean to and there's basically three ways for a child to end up in a pool or a young child and that is either through an act of God which means like a flash flood comes in and throws the child in, in the pool or a tornado lifts them up and throws them in the pool. There's something along that line that's an act of God. The next thing is failure to lock the gate properly so the child goes in. That's negligence. Not looking in, in, in the pool is negligence. And, uh, and then, then the last thing is if, if if it's not negligence, the only other way for a child to end up in the pool is a mother deliberately drawing her child in the pool. And that kind of makes more sense when you realize she wouldn't even jump in the pool even though she could swim. That makes more sense when you see that she wouldn't grant a single burial request, wouldn't give a picture, just wouldn't do anything to help heal my pain from the loss of my son. And that was that was what 
that jury did. They made the thing far worse. Instead of being healed, I was hurt even more. And so, what that juror really succeeded in doing was saving them $100 on their deductible, telling me that my child didn't die because of a mistake, but because she did so deliberately. Now, that has ruined my life, which in turn, now her life is ruined. Chuck's life is ruined. He's been hurt. And, 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 and all because the jury refused to vote in a way that made any kind of common sense and what they would want. If they just follow the golden rule, they would not have voted that way because they know that the child absolutely drowned. And, and had they, had they voted, let's say $100,000, I would have been, okay, this over with, I've been, you know, uh, compensated, and, uh, and we would have gone on through life. I would have gotten married again, had children, she would have uh, kept, you know, in her marriage, and things wouldn't be ruined. But now, everybody's a loser. Now, those very jurors, all their tax money that they're paying is actually paying for me to sit here and rot in prison. Instead of being used for fixing uh, potholes in, in, in the roads or books for school, their money's being wasted. And so... Not only am I hurt, Dory hurt, they're hurting themselves. And what I'm pleading for is that judges and jurors think. Because that's all it takes is a little common sense. You can't allow someone to be hurt so badly that they would do something. And this is, happens so, you know, often people... You never see someone say, hey, I want to make life better for the killer of my child. You don't see that because that's not normal. And that's why the, the justice system can be so powerful because it can clean things up. But it takes jurors to think about what they're doing. And that's why our society is hurting more now than it should be because people aren't thinking. And there's, there's, you know, this should not have happened to anybody. And now I go to, okay, I committed a crime, but I was hurting so badly because not only did she hurt my son, the justice system also hurt me in, in return. And nobody is a, is, is any better for what they decided to do. And and it's so crystal clear that that $100 deductible is no big deal for them. They'd be far better off today had the jury just been fair. Why did you decide on Halloween to dress up as a werewolf to murder your ex-wife? Was it a tactic to not be identified? 
Well, time had been, you know, kind of clicking by, and it did kind of offer a, a chance of not being seen or recognized. So after the murder of your ex-wife, what do you do? What's running through your head at the time? What's running through my mind? Well, there's just complete hatred for, for Dory. You know, thinking that she would deliberately and woefully kill my child. I just hated her. Okay? From what I understand, the crime scene was pretty messy, and the fetus was found in the living room. Did you cut it out and place it on the ground? Uh, well, okay. First, I didn't know that she was pregnant. But So while I'm slashing away at Doreen, I didn't know she was pregnant. And then I hit in the midsection, and it actually kind of popped right out. A lot of water came out, and it just popped out and um, landed, you know, a few feet away from me. So you had no idea that she was pregnant the whole time? I had no idea. I didn't know until I saw, saw it pop out. Her fiancé Charles was out taking their child trick-or-treating while the attack was going on. When he comes back, he slips quite a bit trying to get to the phone, and he dials 911, and he can't get okay, through. Okay, well, see, see, see you, got, you got it slightly mistaken. They had already come back, and he decided to go to the liquor store to buy some smokes and some booze. Uh, he happened to be an alcoholic. One of the things that really bothers me is she would leave me because we, okay, I told you before we argued about money, which is true, the first three years or so of our marriage, we did argue about money. But in the last year of marriage, she was getting into drugs, and I would try to get her to stop taking drugs. And I believe now that she decided to divorce me because I was, you know, pressing her too much to quit taking drugs. And so she leaves me, finds Chuck, who's a cocaine addict, alcoholic, high school dropout, and moves in with him, takes our son into the dangerous household of, of Chuck Erber, who's an alcoholic, uh, you know, just drinking too much and taking cocaine. I believe because if you're a cocaine addict, you can't just say, well, and okay, so that particular night, uh, he, he went out to the store to buy cigarettes and some alcohol. And, uh, and apparently, he stopped at a friend's house and snorted some cocaine and then comes back and finds, you know, Dorian in, in the position that, that she was and, and makes the call. So police officers arrived on the scene at 9.15 that night, and they later showed up to your house at 12.23 in the morning. And when they got there, you agreed to answer some questions and let them in, to which they found an overwhelming amount of evidence inside your house, and you're arrested that night. What's the aftermath that followed the arrest that night? Well, okay, first I was taken to the county jail and then to the county hospital to get an operation because I had uh, cut my hand uh, during, during the attack. And uh, so I'm no expert at, on anything. I didn't know what evidence was left. I didn't know. But there was all kinds of evidence as, as it turned out. 
you're ultimately charged for the murder of your ex-wife and the fetus, and you're sentenced to right. die in San Quentin State Prison, where you currently reside. What was your first day on death row like? Um, just kind of, you know, looking around, looking around. It was kind of mysterious. It was a, a little cell, and it was very noisy, and, you know, there's really nothing to do because I didn't really have anything other than the bedding material that, that they gave me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to tell you that I was, I was feeling scared, but I didn't really feel scared because I knew that eventually I would get my case overturned. I now feel I could be wrong. I might not get my case overturned, but I firmly believe that since no one else before has gotten a death penalty for killing the killer of the child, that, that shouldn't happen to me either. All I, all I really want is an attorney to represent me, be my advocate, and not be a DA helper like Tito Gonzalez was, who was my trial attorney at the time. He gave a terrible representation. Didn't, didn't, didn't tell the jury about, you know, uh, what happened in, in Paul's death or any of that kind of stuff. And we live in a society that in the past 130 years, we've not executed a single woman for killing her husband, no matter what the reason was, okay? We've never, uh, while we've executed 49 men for killing their wife, none of them have been executed for, because their wife had cheated on them or hurt their child in any way. So, so there's such great mitigating circumstance. I should not be on death row. I'm actually a very good person. I'm a kind person. I do things like using the justice system first. I do what, you know, what the what typical people do. I was working at Rockheed for seven years, also going to San Jose State to improve my education, and. I was working hard, but, you, you know, you can only ask so much of a human being. If you don't think you should be on death row, what do you think the appropriate sentence should have been handed down to you? What do you think it should have been? Okay, I think it should have been a uh, heat of passion because, because it was caused directly because I believe she killed Paul. The trial attorney I had wouldn't even open his mouth to say, my client has no criminal record. Wouldn't do that, didn't give an opening statement. I want you to call my appeal attorney to ask him to verify that, because I want you to know that I'm telling you the truth. This is such an unusual, mind-boggling case that, I would find, if someone were to tell me, I'd say, oh, I can't believe that a jury would find a loss of a child being a loss that's equal to nothing. After all these years, you're still very angry. What do you think could have been done to prevent not only the death of your son, Paul, but the death of your ex-wife? Oh, oh well, you know, if, if she part of getting a divorce and, you know, as the father... What kind of hurts me is I had really no say in how, what kind of fence was put in, how it was maintained, none of that. So I'm hurting 
because I feel that I it was taken out of, out of control. So I've had no no control over my son's life when it when it came to what they were doing in their backyard with their pool. And what I find really amazing is two years later when I'm suing them, they have a two-year-old daughter. They have the same frickin' fence in the backyard and still have the pool. The dog had drowned, my son had drowned, and yet you would think any logical person would say, hey, this, this pool isn't worth keeping in the backyard because our little girl might drown, okay? But they kept the pool. That, you know what that tells me? That they say, oh, we had control. We knew what, that, that we could have prevented Paul from drowning, but Doreen wanted him dead, okay? Because you, you'd be a stupid person to say, hey, let's see if one more child dies. Their little girl's life was hanging in the balance. If they never meant for Paul to drown, their little girl's life was in the balance because they say they had no, you know, it wasn't their fault. They did it. They say they did everything to prevent it, but they kept the pull. What kind of common sense is that? Of course I'm upset. My life has been ruined. I, my life would be beautiful if my son was still alive. I had a great job at Lockheed. I had bought a house. In fact, my house was half a mile away from where they live. So a few years later, my son would have been able to ride his bike over or even walk over to visit. I visited him often, and I'm proud to say he was a daddy's boy. And I think he was a daddy's boy would get drunk. Well, he wouldn't act in a very appropriate way. And he really didn't like to go back home. And I had, like, like I, like I told you before, I had to pick him up to put him in the house. So am I angry today because my life is ruined? Yes. Am I, do, uh, do I think the justice system is fair? No. They said a loss of a child is nothing. The greatest loss that a human being can suffer is nothing. That's just wrong. All I'm asking is jurors to think, be fair. Had they had they said he died of negligence, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, that's peanuts. You know, most wrongful deaths are in the millions of dollars. At, at, at that time, you have 60 seconds remaining. Okay, right. State Bar said that the proper amount was $170,000. They said zero, even though they knew 100% that Paul had drowned in that pool. Zero. They're the ones who, uh, who just ruined it for us. All they had to do is be fair. That was my interview with William Dennis. Thank you for listening.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.